This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello. This is part two of my interview with Joel Morris, which also includes the show's regular section, Change of Character. If you haven't listened to part one, then you might want to go back and catch up. And if you have, well then, welcome back. Enjoy. If you had to be isolated with any TV comedy character, who would it be? Ooh. <laughs> I'm going to say mm-hmm. Arbed from Community. Obviously, ah. Albert Nadir from Community, because if you're going to be isolated with someone, then 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 basically you want to be someone who can make a whole world. Yeah, <laughs> as in, I would be, I would be also unbearable. But I, part of me goes, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? Be lovely and mad. Be very, yeah, yes. I was suddenly thinking. I was watching Community last night, thinking how much I love. I don't want it. We're nearing the end of a rewatch of it, and I, I'm, I'm at the stage where I don't want it to end. Everyone sort of says, "Oh, there's some series that are good and some series that are bad." And I went, but they've all got those characters in. I don't care. Um, it's delightful to be of a great age and find a little comedy cast who you just. I want every time it cuts to one of them, I want them to speak. I like them all. Even yes. though they're all unbearable. You want to be friends with them. That is very much a... Yeah. It's a really remarkable demonstration of how good writing interesting characters rather than likeable characters is. Because they're all dislikable and they're all likeable in the same way. It's a really good version of that American thing where they let characters be very, very big and cartoonish. Uh, but also... Yes. I'm spending my time with a community cast at the moment of characters. Yes. And I don't want to spend any time without them. I get really upset mm. when one of them leaves. When, when Troy left, when Donald Glover left, we all got really upset. It was like oh, a real friend yeah. had gone. And I think that's <laughs> a secret thing about comedy is that those lovely families, you don't ever want to lose one. You don't want to, them to stop being on the television. The, the endlessness of, of, of sitcom is, yeah. Uh, my, my take on community is the same as uh, Mark Lewison's take on the Beatles, which he said, more Beatles is always good. So more episodes with those characters in, I am happy. So I will pick Arbed because that's a lovely performance. Danny Pudi is amazing. Would you indulge in in the same kind of mad imaginative world he creates, like, you know, Troy and Arbed <laughs> in the morning or the or the, um, the, pill- the blanket fort? You know, would you go all out? I think I live in a constant blanket fort anyway. I don't think it's anything different. I think what what's interesting, <laughs> I think, is I probably pretend I'm more functional than that. But I think one of the lovely things about that show is it says it's okay to be dysfunctional. Yes. The idea is that sitcoms are supposed to trap you. as They're all supposed to be trapped. And that makes people write quite tense, quite up, uptight sitcoms. But there's also a nice thing about being trapped and liking it, the Stockholm Syndrome version of it, yes. which I think is what you get in shows like Crazy Ex Girlfriend and, and Community. American shows do very, very well. It's not cringe comedy. It's not uncomfortable comedy. For some amazing reason, it's warm. It's cosy, isn't it? It is nice to watch them like each other. And it's nice yes. to watch them need each other. And it's a bit like one of those things where look, not everyone in the band has to be the best player as long as the band plays well together and that understanding of ensemble in that I'm suddenly off the top of my head picking a 
British sitcom I saw last night that gets that completely is that it'll be so easy in the good life for the couple who've rejected the rat race and are ruining their garden to be at loggerheads with their next door neighbours but it's so much funnier and so much warmer and so much nicer that they like each other and they're trying their best to accept yes. their failings yeah that they're different they're very different uh, outlooks yeah. and they're people those yeah. artificial families mm. those artificial families that they do hang together um, yeah so yes I would like to hang out with at the moment I'm hanging out with someone from community so it would be very very uh, dishonest to not say they're making me happy that lot Um, something we've talked about on the podcast before but I'm very interested to hear your take on it sketch uh, on telly now or rather the whole sketch moving to online do you like do you think it's likely like we're talking about man stroke woman do you think it's likely we will see another sort of tv sketch show like that or do you think that sketch is more it belongs online and it's more about um having regular sketches that come out maybe daily or weekly or whatever as opposed to or, or they come out in ice they work in isolation rather than being part of a, a sort of half hour framework i think it's really interesting there was a there was a feeling i mean there are a couple of sketch shows coming out i know uh bbc have got a couple delightfully i think they've got two female double act sketch shows and the temptation would always be to only commission one for reasons that you want to bang people's heads against the desk for but uh oh yeah because tash and ellie yeah and i think uh, lazy susan have got one yes. as well i think they, they they commissioned both of them oh yes. um and i think that's brilliant but th- there are some sketch shows coming out and they will be authored and belong to those people which is brilliant i think what's missing is a real shame as a training ground is that uh sketch show where like not on nine o'clock news or man straight woman where loads of writers can get together and learn their skills because mm. it tends to be that people now learn their skills in smaller and smaller places you're not you can't really learn your skills writing a sitcom you can't be a staff writer in the uk you can't sit in a room while someone's writing a sitcom with you you don't get into those rooms sitcom is too high stakes it's got all the best people in it working yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah or what it's got is a new talent working with old talent to, to, to sort of shepherd them yes. which is fine that works as well but what you don't get is rooms full of people coming in and observing and learning how things are made learning production process learning learning how to take notes and things and I think that's what you learn from sketch is learning to take notes learning to do stuff and you don't learn that from running your own YouTube channel what you don't learn is how to do yes. the process of it and how expensive things are or whatever or how impossible things are you never get to work with a budget that way you get to do stuff and you can only write sketches that you can perform or your friends can perform it it limits you in what you can do yeah and i think that's a real shame i think losing losing sketch shows losing open door sketch shows losing those things and the fact that open door sketch shows what annoys me as well is that open door sketch shows are only ever one thing which tends to be topical and that's great yes. but that's a very very specific voice we tried to pitch I did it for years and no one would ever take it I said I want to put a show on television that is an open door sketch show that isn't about the news yeah. it can be on radio or TV I don't care but it's about life there's nothing stopping someone who's never written before writing a really great observational sketch about their experience and then having it acted by really, really good actors. Yeah. And it drove me mad. I, I remember writing a pitch saying that, especially because Mitchell and Webb, we'd done a lot of observational sketches that people then used as examples of things in online debate. 
people would say, this is just like, yes. um, are we the baddies? Or this is just like homeopathic A&E. And oh, it would, yes. I went, oh, there's a yeah, conversation yeah, yeah. going on where these sketches have nailed a feeling or a, expressed an idea. John Finnemore's astonishing sketch he did for Mitchell Web Sound about what do you reckon? Phone in, phone in if you reckon something. Um, and no one had expressed that before as where news was going. Andrew from Eastbourne reckons it's a sad indictment of the way we live. Matthew from Ilkley reckons it isn't. Patricia from Southampton wonders what Wordsworth would say and thinks she knows. And James from Amersham would like the fire brigade quickly, for God's sake, he's trapped, he's trapped. <laughs> Thanks for those and keep those emails coming. It is for some reason apparently vital that you do. And it was, we've had enough of experts about five years before then. A perfect encapsulation of that. And I just said, why isn't this show... This show doesn't need even stars. It could just be a show. Like, not... I've got news, yeah. as, in, as in put a cast together and... and but take sketches from everybody. So if someone's got one sketch in them, but it's the perfect encapsulation of what it feels like to be X, Y, or Z, a teacher or whatever, it can be in it. Um, but it's really hard to do. And I never understood why... We, but when, when we pitched... We pitched Agendum, which is our radio uh, satire show. Oh, yes. Uh, the, the, I pitched that to TV originally, and then we went through, and ended up on radio. And I and we got commissioned, as you always do, for four of it. And I went, I was kind of expecting you to commission 36 of these. Yeah. Because I actually, know, you could do this every week. And then after a bit, I wouldn't have to write all the sketches. Jason and I could just script edit it. And this could be an open door sketch show where like The Onion or MASH, where if you've uh, seen something in the news that you can do a really good parody of, it could be on this week. Um, but it wouldn't have to have Boris Johnson impressions in it. It wouldn't have to be literally a response to the news. It could be socially a response to how we react around technology or something. And it's really odd that that voice has gone from TV, a way of expressing how we feel about the world. But I think that it would be hard to do you'd have to be quite brave to bring it back right now um i think the easiest thing to do is to bring back sketch shows star-led with a big voice and things which is a shame because i think that's only one mm. bringing back sketch show at all will feel like a very bold move i think it's a real shame that we what we've lost yeah. is that kind of empty bucket that you can put anything in that was not or python or alas smith and jones or something which were huge writing yes. teams all of whom went on to do brilliant stuff um yeah, I really miss that. I th- even the two Ronnies, for God's sake, although all those shows which just had great teams of writers in them, absolutely big open door writing, which were script edited shows like Man Straight Woman was. You could send a sketch to Man Straight Woman, and it was the perfect encapsulation of something that was allowed on. Yeah, and I think we've lost that, and you won't get that from someone's curated channel. And the other thing you won't get is writers you will only get performers and i think that's a fight we've kind of lost as writers i'm not a writer performer i got into this industry thinking no. i didn't want to do that so i didn't do drama or didn't do i'm not interested i'm not a good enough performer mm. but i think we've lost all the writers because the only way to get things on tv now uh, yeah. is to be uh, an essential part of the performance of something so that's where you get something that has a voice a strong voice is that you own it and i think that it's a fight that's been lost, as in I think writer performers have an innate advantage. They will do okay. Though they'll be frustrated if they don't get cast in things that they've written and it gets given to a star, yeah. which wouldn't have happened to, I don't know, es- Esmond Alarby or Clement Lafrenia. They were happy to just write. But I think you've lost the writer-writer and that's, they were always useful for sketch shows. You wouldn't, you're not going to get Richard Curtis 
and whether you think that's a, bad, a good or a bad thing, and I'm a huge fan of Richard Curtis and certainly his sketch work and his sitcom work, you won't get that person who isn't also a performer. No, like uh, Ian Hislop and Nick Newman before they yeah. just, just writing and everything on spitty image. Yeah, these people are very often, they're, they're, they're joke factories and they're machines and they, they write in a way that comedy is so multifaceted and so specific. Your taste is so narrow yes. very often in the things that really make you laugh. Something that's almost exactly like something you love fails. It can miss so easily. You need as many different sorts of comedy on television as possible, or on radio as possible, or on the internet as possible. All catering for different audiences is not... You can't just make a drama about a policeman that's really tense and hope the whole country watches it. That, there isn't really a comedy equivalent, but yeah. they're really hard to find. So you need character comedy done by character performers and who can do YouTube sketches with their great characters in it. But I think you also, to suddenly decide you don't need the equivalent of David Nobbs writing great sketches or David Rennick writing great sketches or um, I'm listing all the the, the, the great uh, men of the past uh, or whoever. Yes. You don't need the voices of those non-performing writers that there's nowhere for them to go and to say, well, I'm sorry, it's all on YouTube now if you can't perform it yourself. The moment as a writer you need to ask a friend to perform it, you're asking someone to do something for nothing and that's really hard. What you really want is to have a budget. <laughs> if there's more than just one of you doing it. And that's why it gets really hard to be a writer. You can't put your sitcom on YouTube because who's paying all those people? Exactly, yeah. Uh, there was a show that sadly, um, uh, I, won't, I won't say the name of it, but uh, it, was, uh, it was an ITV2 one. Not long after I'd... Um, uh, got my Radio 4 commission. I met with uh, this producer and he was saying, oh, you know, we're making this new show with like a melting pot of writing and performing talent. We want to make it like the sort of new 11 o'clock show. Yeah, yeah. I was like, my God, this sounds great. He said, yeah, it'd be, really, it'd be great to get you on board. And also the writers kind of helped develop it and pitch the talent. And it just sounded like the best job, <laughs> like, especially at the time. <laughs> it was like, wow. Um so he was like, "I'll oh, keep, you know, keep in touch, and um, we should be getting it going soon." And then when I got back in touch a few months later, uh, the guy had left, as what happens with, of course, yeah, every all these <laughs> all these companies. Yeah. And this uh, someone else answered, and uh, I said, "Oh, um, I just gave back in touch about about the show, and you know, I'm still really keen to to write on it and be part of it." And they literally just went. Oh, we're not ha we're not having writers. Our performers are going to write it all. Yeah, and that was it. Yeah, yeah, and that show um, flopped, and a load of the performers in it who I knew said outright, "We needed writers." It's not the first time I've heard that story happening. I remember it was. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, there's very often a a complete trust that all you need is the is the improvisers and that the energy will be there. Which again. That is a very American way of doing it because everyone has both skills in America. The improv background means that, that most writers are improvisers and most performers are writers. But I think it makes a very... What I was saying about sort of there needing to be diversity of comedy, of sorts of comedy, of there needing to be many sorts of comedy on television and radio as possible, is that that performer-led character sketch type of comedy is only one voice. It's only one sort of comedy. Maybe you don't like that. That's not going to give you... That's not going to give you the day-to-day -day or on mm. the hour. That's going to give you uh, Little Britain, and it's going to give you possibly bits of Alan Partridge, but the rest of Alan Partridge is written by people who trained on writing 
were writers. That's that. Yeah. Alan Partridge is the voice of Peter Bainham. Exactly. Who yeah. does perform, but he's not a major performer. He's mainly a writer. Um, you get a different voice there, and I think that trying to make a career out of that and saying we'll only have writer performers. Well, of course, that's exciting. Um, and thrilling and it's a voice it's a, it's, a, it's a type of comedy but it's not the only type of comedy and you are ignoring the potential to combine that with with uh, what writers want to say and um, yeah I don't know I mean I, I, it's, it wasn't better in the past or anything it's all to change, change around but it's funny when you watch people uh, when they remove colours from the palette I always find that really disappointing yeah and you, oh, you didn't need to not make any sketch shows you didn't need to not have any yeah. writers. As in, the absolutism of it always slightly depresses me because, I, I don't know, um, you do end up in a in a funny position as a, as a writer-writer, as in very often your job is is sort of fixing things. <laughs> fixing things. And, yeah. and also, you, you, the, the, you're dreading that thing. You're going, you've written something, you know it works, and if it was, if it was read out, it'd be great. And then someone says, oh, we're, we're workshopping it with a cast. And you went, I'm sure it'll be really lively. People also get very overexcited by change. Everyone's bored with scripts yes. by the time they get to film them. They've read them too many times. And so something that's come up, something oh, yeah. that someone comes up with very quickly on the fly in the excitement of a shoot often feels like the best bit. Um, but actually what you're probably ignoring is the fact that all the original lines that were written there that you looked over 40 times to get to the point of the shoot were also brilliant. And if you delivered those, they'd also be fantastic. We found that with Kunk. When we first did Philomena Kunk, we wrote oh, yeah. uh, a little sort of what was a Brian Cox parody of like Moments of Wonder we, when we expanded her from, from oh, yes. just being a talking head to doing a little five minute thing at the end of, of Charlie's show three minute thing at the end of Charlie's show we wrote uh-huh, yeah. a really really well made parody of uh, a documentary with all the beats in it and the cuts and the jokes and the puns and things and we came back and watched the assembly and the assembly was they'd taken the three minutes or something of, of sketches we'd written and edited that down to about 30 seconds the build up and then there was about nine minutes of improv that Diane was doing with the expert. And I said, I, I, it wasn't a finished cut. I went, oh, you've fallen in love with mm. all the stuff that happened on the day, as you would do, because Diane's hilarious and the reactions. And everyone yes. who was involved in the crew, as in the writers aren't there, were so overexcited by what they'd made from nothing. Yes. And I was saying, you need more of the stuff that was written, because that was really funny. And then basically maybe about the same amount of the interview. Yeah. But you... They got so overexcited with what had happened on the day and the magic and watching it happen for the first time. That it kind of sacrifices the work that, you, <laughs> that had gone into the writing. Yeah, all the jokes everyone was bored with. Of course, no one wanted to keep that in the edit. And they went and rebalanced it. And actually, it was great. I think it ended up being two minutes of sketch and one minute of interview. And that was about right. In the, yeah. But I think people get overexcited with, with what happens live. And it's one of the reasons, a friend explained this to me recently, why, which had never occurred to me, why audiences are really useful for comedy. Uh, some of it is to give, mm. I always thought it was to give the actors energy or whatever. And I go, oh God, it's so noisy and you can't seem to put jokes in to keep yep. the audience happy. But what it does is it makes the performers confident that the jokes they're bored with are still funny. They tell a joke that they've done 14 times in rehearsal that's been yeah. that's been underreacted to by the crew. And suddenly someone goes, I've never heard that character voice before i've never heard that pun before and there's this huge rush and the actors then get confidence to not go off script ah. they then perform the lines as written and i'd never thought of a live audience as the writer's friend i'd always thought of it as the performer's friend and actually the live audience is completely the writer's friend because it means that the actors then yes. go oh i've got this lovely thing to lean back on that i know will get laughs and if it doesn't get laughs then i can do a silly voice i can improvise around it but i've got this absolute scaffolding that's getting laughs and it's a lovely thing to to work with 
because I never thought I'm not being a performer I don't sort of understand that and I think as well performers sometimes don't know to feed that back to you as a writer because they think you already know I, I don't know I didn't do footlights I don't perform I'm, I've, I've never been never been on stage I don't know what that feels like I got a lovely description from Simon Kane. he was being very nice one night and he said he'd, he'd been doing he'd just yes. done John Finnemore series and then, and oh, then yeah. he'd done very soon after he'd done Angstrom for us, which is our Scandinavian detective oh, yes, pastiche. Yeah. Uh, and he was playing the narrator in it, very, very <laughs> dour Scandinavian narrator. And he said, he said, I love your, your scripts. And I said, oh, thank you. That's very nice. And he said, John Finnemore was like bark. It's like doing a string quartet. He said, every note is in exactly the right place and you mustn't get any of them wrong. And he said, but your scripts are like jazz. It's roughly the melody and roughly the chords and they're all in the right place, but I can go anywhere I like within them and ride the audience up and down and, make them, and I went that's the nice thing you could say but what he's saying is there's a relationship between the audience the performer and the script that is different depending on the style yes. of writing and I went great that's really lovely to hear that you found that there's room in this which I thought was quite a precisely written script you went no there's room in that I can stretch out lay back and go slow and go fast and I went I didn't know that at all that's really interesting yeah I'd, I'd no, I had no idea <laughs> it's enough to make you wonder Next time on Moments of Wonder, I'll be asking where your lap goes when you stand up. I was going to ask you, actually, because obviously a lot of people, as we're talking about, like, you know, writers and performers, they go down the sort of Edinburgh route, you know, initially, perhaps. How did you sort of get into into sort of writing comedy? Was family the first thing you had done? And then it kind of took off from there. Like, where was your sort of jumping off point? Again, writing stuff for... I'd done a, a couple of weekending meetings when I was 19 or 20. I'd written a couple of sketches for Russ Abbott and done some sort of the usual sort of stuff you do where you can oh, yeah. send a thing in and, and, and to, a, to a writer's room and things. Uh, and then struggled to make a career out of it. Stopped for 10 years, did music and bands and things for a bit, for about a decade. Uh, worked in shops and was an illustrator. Wow. And then when Framley came up, the opportunity was there because it was it was no, there was no gatekeeper because it was the internet. And we could just, I said, well, should we do some comedy again? Yes. So I got effectively got the band back together again the people at school had made me laugh we got together um and did this thing because it was open that got us so family was the calling card uh and i always remember that that when we were talking about things like should you do youtube sketches the answer is yes of course you should bloody do it because my calling card that i still get work off and bob odenkirk's still nice about is a thing done for love for what could i afford to do what's the cheapest thing i could do i've got a computer i'm an illustrator and designer mm. i've got graphic design software i've got a friend who, who who will tell me how to get a website that's how i got it i didn't get into the industry by sending sketches into weekending i never got a single thing on there i didn't get my career by being a writer on on the russ abbott show that was two or three sketches that was not my career my career was got by doing something myself where i could show what i and the people i was working with could do it was you you will tend to show yourself off working within someone else's format the news quiz whatever as being able to do their thing. Yes. And that's a really useful thing as a writer. You want to show you can work for someone and fit their brief. But you also, at the same time, need to be shown you can do your thing. And the great thing now is that doing your thing is something you can do in public on YouTube or, or, or a podcast. Yes. Or you can you can show. Make sure you're doing both those things because I think they're both important. So, yeah, uh, getting into comedy. I didn't do... Well, I did one Edinburgh show. Oh, yeah. Uh, which we wrote, didn't perform as a writer, never performed. And it got voted worst play on the fringe. It won a prize. What, um, what was it? What was... It was terrible. Uh, we were about, I was about <laughs> 20... Jason and I were about 23, and someone asked us to write a play. 
and the, the brief was for the most people possible because there was some money at, uh, it was at my old college had some money and they said we want to take as many people up to Edinburgh as possible because it's a good experience for actors to have so, so write a thing with a enormous ensemble cast and then oh we could all God. and then we could all go up and have fun and genuinely the worst idea possible because the first play you should write should be a two-hander so we wrote a thing with about yes. 15 people in it what was it a farce yeah it was kind of a i don't even know what it was it was a, a play it was it was just people talking and doing jokes um and it was wow. and it was and feel what it was it was moderately bad like everyone's first thing should be but it wasn't that bad and he got this worst play on the fringe vote from the scotsman uh and all the cast were really depressed and people turned up and complained because it was okay they went that's oh, all right and I went, yeah, I know it's all right. I think Roger McGough came to sit and said, that's great. I said, it's not that bad. I said, it's okay. So it was all right. but it was, and, and it was really depressing. But we weren't performing, so I didn't have to face audiences or anything. So we yes. And that was actually the best way of experiencing Edinburgh because I got to be up there but not be in things. And then I think off the back of that and off the back of Framley, <laughs> we made lots of friends in comedy off the back of Framley who were performers. Yes. And then that meant that when I went up to edinburgh in the 2000s rather than the 90s uh we had mm. friends up there so i could go and see friend shows and I, I i slept on floors and went on people's sofas and because i knew enough people in the scene i thought if i hang about in the bars where people are drinking someone will have a yes. spare sofa so i went and did about five edinburgh's like that just sofa surfing and going to see shows and getting to know people and also getting to know how it was done so i just observed i, I didn't do anything up there i was a complete parasite but um, I'd say that was probably as important as anything was hanging around with people who did it. So I met, that's where I met people like sort of Bartman and Evans who were doing stuff up there. Uh, and James Bartman was doing uh, The Wicker Woman and Gladiatrix and Bartman and Evans were doing shows. I met them and by knowing them that then got me to know, I don't know, I knew the absolutely guys who were up there doing shows still there and I think. So I got to know people and that meant that they knew people who were doing shows. So I met uh, sort of Danny Robbins and, uh, and Dan Tetzel who were doing shows oh, up there yes. and uh, Matt Hornis and Alice Lowe so you got to meet people who were still doing stuff up there yes. and knowing that that gave you a comedy family and then all that that then became people you were when you went into a room you knew people so when you were called in to do a show there would often be people other writers and other performers who you'd met and you weren't strangers yes and then it became that it's the thing I talked about is you only get work by know, having known people 10 years ago so it meant that yes. <laughs> almost almost everyone I know in comedy is from that period of sofa surfing up in Edinburgh sure, going yeah. to people's shows and I think that's as important as, as doing a show is you need to just be around you need to have shared uh, crying on fire escapes at three in the morning um, they're, they're your people <laughs> deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
to be honest, I, I, I used to fib a lot because I thought it was the thing you meant to say and say, oh, what you do is you go in through the usual methods, but the usual methods are really biased towards people who are in London or other certain people or, or knew each other at college or whatever. The way to do it is to do something really good yourself or that people think is really good, uh, that you really enjoy, that expresses the best of you, the best you can be. Yeah. And make sure it's publicly available. And the only thing that's really good now that wasn't good when I started out is that that's not hard. Yes. Um, as in the distribution networks are there and and also the publicity networks are there. there. There, there is sort of a level playing field that you're using the same method to publicise your thing as the comics you really admire. They're just using Twitter and hoping that someone else, hoping that someone who likes you can recommend you to other people. We're back to Bob Odenkirk. The only reason Bob Odenkirk likes Framley is because Robert Popper liked Framley. And Robert yeah. at the time was was not not Friday night dinner big no, no, Robert no. Popper. He was just a guy who liked those kind of jokes. And who I think I often think that what Robert saw in Framley I've not said this before, but I was just thinking it recently. I think he saw the fact that it was people who knew each other really well and certainly siblings because there's two brothers in Framley yes and people who've been friends for a long time and he what he finds funny is the jokes he used to have with his brother which is what Friday Night Dinner is about yes, I think yes. he saw a kinship and of course what he and Peter Serafinovich have is Peter's got James Serafinovich they are people who find in jokes between really close groups of people family or friends really funny a shared gag a Vic and Bob level kind of a, a, a like French and Saunders used to have or Anna and Katie had jokes that appear to be telepathic between people that only they find funny Yes, and I think Robert saw that in family because it was a bunch of people who'd made each other laugh since school and siblings who make each other laugh since birth that they liked that it's really interesting it's a private joke sharing sharing I, I'm, I'm writing something like this at the moment i think the highest form of joke is 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 a shared joke uh that you've made accessible to more people than it was initially intended for and i think that all of us can make hope most of us can make a close friend or a sibling or a family member laugh Yes, and what professional comics do? They've worked out a way by using skills to make the rest of the class laugh at a joke that's a private joke, and that's where the craft. That's where the magic is. The craft is: can you take a joke that only you find funny, or only you and one other person find funny, and make it so that everyone's got a way in to your private joke, and then the hilarity's brilliant. A lot of people say they want a career in TV, but how's that likely to pan out? Well, the chances are it might look something like this. Working with Charlie. Yeah. Because like how you already knew him with Brooker, yeah. I, I yes, yeah. Again, we didn't work with him for ages. It's really funny the number of people that I've worked with for a long time who, for the first few years, we were just hanging out or we knew we had mutual friends or whatever. Mm. Again, it's that social nature of British comedy. I knew David and Rob Mitchell and Webb for years before writing a single word for them. Ah. Then we got. A job on that the first thing I wrote for them was their tour programme and they went on tour so they've been going for ages they were going on a big tour and and some I think James Bartman was supposed to have, James Bartman was supposed to have written and designed their tour programme because he was really good with Quark oh, Express yeah. and he'd forgotten to or he couldn't be bothered or he was just having a busy week <laughs> and I, I said to him down the pub well do you want us to do it we've done Framley we can do it. and I did that and then they I got to know them better than just being people down the pub or people at 
comedy dudes. Uh, and Charlie the same. We'd work, I'd, I'd known Charlie for years, never written a single thing apart from two jokes mm. for TV Go Home. Yes. And then I think when he first started Screenwipe, I think Jason and I dropped him a line and said, can we come on Screenwipe? Because at the beginning, the format for Screenwipe was people would come on like a podcast and choose their favourite yes. bit of TV. Yes. And yes. Jason yes. and I wanted to come on and talk about Five Star, the band performing at the closing of Pebble Mill, uh, that we thought was the funniest thing we'd ever seen on YouTube. Uh, and he said, oh, we can't do that. We have him big comedians and things on there now but then I think he remembered we'd asked to come on you know it's reassuring that in this morally bankrupt age of sweary shock TV there are still corners of the schedule where you can find wide-eyed sweetness and wholesome charm and music and dancing and infuriating little piss weasels they tried actually they tried here's an interesting thing about fit and voices they tried loads of writers to write charlie's voice really and no one could do it charlie can do it because it's charlie's voice it's a very authored thing but i think because we've got slightly similar backgrounds as in age Mm. interests class yes even attitude to work there's a bunch of stuff we all grew up with the same television yes i'm a video games nerd uh, all that stuff so weirdly I find Charlie effortless to write because it's just writing in my voice. And then... Yes. And as, as, a, as a writer rather than a performer, you're always doing impressions of people anyway in the room. John, John Rain, the, the, the Smurfs podcaster, sat with us in the office once while we were writing a film in a kunk book. Oh, yes. At the end of the day, he said, so you do the voice out loud? And I went, yeah, you can't write unless you do the voice out loud. And he said, I didn't realise that it was that voice in the room all day. I said, was it distracting? He said, it's just relentless. He was trapped in a room with two kunks. Um, but yeah, you're, you're always you're always kind of, even if you're not an impressionist, you're always doing an impression of someone. And Charlie, uh, Charlie, I can, I can do a reasonable impression of Charlie because I think <laughs> we're sort of the same-ish. Yes. So yeah, we found that very easy. Uh yeah, and we got that job just because we, I think we were, we were the fastest at producing a lot of Charlie very quickly because actually it's, it's within easy reach. Someone told me this about, I was asking, I was very jealous of Sam and Jesse who write Peep Show. Yes. Because, uh, of course, they're brilliant. Um, I was just going, I said, I don't know, they're producing so much good stuff and Peep Show is of such a high quality when they're in the middle of the series. And I asked a friend, I said, God, how do they do it? I said, it's such a good inhabiting of those voices. And this friend said, well, you know Sam and Jesse and David and Rob are the same people. I went, what? He said, yeah. They, he said, everyone thinks they're writing for David and Rob because those characters fit over them so nicely. But actually, those characters roughly fit over Sam and Jesse. One of them is far more uh, in touch with sort of spiritual and sort of far more easygoing. Yeah, One's yeah, far yeah. more about politics and far more uh, rigid. Yeah. He said, they're writing for David and Rob, but in their own voices. And because David and Rob are so good at playing those characters, no one thinks that's just Sam and Jesse talking to each other. That is fascinating. And I think it's true. Hmm. And I think you find that a lot when you look at writers. I only recently realised it about Clement Lafrenet, right? The Lightly Lads is actually there's a lot of each of those characters in them. Yes. So they can just talk to each other. And very often all you're doing is when you're writing character is talking to yourself in two voices. So it helps if you've got a friend who's a bit like one of the characters or it helps if the two of you who are writing a thing, having a conversation about what you feel about the modern world, have those two views. And I can tell you what Charlie would say about things because I think a lot of the same things yes. about it. <laughs> in fact, it was really funny when we did antiviral wipe. Oh, yes. Which we did during the lockdown. And obviously we've been doing this a lot. So we know that voice. Yes. But I can't remember what the conclusion was. But we had a huge debate about... The funny thing for Charlie's character on screen 
is that Charlie's character on screen would not give a shit about the virus coming. Oh, it's rubbish. Oh, nonsense. Oh, that probably won't happen. And the joke would, he'd sit on the sofa and he'd say, Wuhan, new horror virus. Well, that's not going to happen. Oh, yeah. And I said, the funny thing about that is that Charlie is slightly germophobic and is really worried about germs all the time. The real Charlie. We said, well, the weird thing is, even I know what you would say when you saw a pandemic report on the news, which is, right, everyone, we're washing our hands all the time. Yeah. The character you're playing on screen, who is ostensibly you, would not say that. So we were kind of you're parroting people but parroting versions of them you're you're they're a puppet they're an avatar for you but you you can't just rely on them being the person you know you're doing a version of them yes uh, everyone is so charlie's performing a version of charlie and and sam and jesse are parroting versions of themselves via versions of david and rob that aren't those real people but contain enough of those real people to make the writing flow i think i think it gives flow to the writing if you can put yourself comfortably in someone's shoes i call it um when you sit down to write sometimes the tools are on a very high shelf when you start doing something the voices as in you have to keep getting a step ladder out to go what does this person like and get it down when you're used to writing for someone <laughs> you've brought all the relevant tools down and they're on the desk within easy reach and that is when you finally go oh i can write in this character's voice really easily because i know what they'd say about this that and the other but for the first couple of weeks of writing something that or everything you need all the kit is on a very high shelf um, and it and it can get it can feel um, depressing because you go why why am I no good at writing anymore and you went no because the tools are you've not got your toolkit down yet it's all on a it's all on that box up there and you have to climb up the stairs each time you want to do a single line you want to get the bloody ladder out and after a while you want you want to find voices that you can write effortlessly and those will yes. be the, look around what tools have you got to hand oh I'm nervous okay fine that 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 character will will parrot that bit of me makes it easier and that's exactly how TV works. <laughs> It's one of the things that's really fascinating about people who occupy characters uh, very successfully, because you know that Alan Partridge and Steve Coogan are not far enough apart for it to be comfortable. And it's one of the lovely yes. things you can see. I think Steve understands that. I hope he does. That that what's funny <laughs> is that that stuff is very, very close to hand for him. The, there's a yes. side of him. There's a side of Basil Fawlty that's inside John Cleese that makes that feel authentic when you see the performance and means that he always yeah. knows what Basil will say. So there's not, you can't see a thinking process. And I think that is secretly more important than people would admit that there has to be a bit of you in the most effortless characters you do. Yeah, and you being self-aware. Yeah. So it's, yeah, there is therapy in it. It's really hard. There's a lovely thing one of the Gibbons brothers said to me is that the phone went off when they were recording the audio book of I Partridge. And uh, Steve Coogan, who was doing the audio book, answered it. And I said, oh, in character. And he went, it was really hard to tell so we left it in so in the audiobook he takes a phone call in the middle of it he said it might have been steve talking to his agent he said but weirdly he was so deep in character at that point that it was impossible to talk and it's the kind of thing alan would have done which is answer a phone in the middle of reading his own audiobook so we thought it was fun oh, that's brilliant but i loved him saying we couldn't tell we couldn't tell because the, the there was a seamlessness in it and that's the kind of thing steve would do it's the kind of thing alan would do so the the blurring was really really comfortable and yeah he was in character so it was fine but they couldn't tell if he'd stopped <laughs> final section it's called change of character this name has come from uh, fran bush and the name is vanessa vongole vanessa vongole who is vanessa vongole now vanette this is this is good this has got baggage because we used to pick the names of the ladybird books very carefully some of them were silly and some of them were real names 
and there was one one of the shortest pages we ever did was of uh, a, a picture of a lighthouse from a huge distance from a helicopter and the caption was it's only a trial separation said vanessa and i remember <laughs> showing this page to our head of michael joseph a very grand literary publisher and she said oh god vanessa and i said what's your you know what Vanessa's are like and I hadn't ever known what Vanessa's were like so now my, my prejudice is now <laughs> Vanessa's are terrible so Vanessa Vongelay she's terrible she's very grand uh, and she's probably Vanessa Vongelay is dressed and in my mind looks like someone from Tales of the Unexpected mm-hmm. she is the the other woman who's appeared in Tales of the Unexpected there's a there's a slightly dowdy wife Yes. And the husband, who is constantly barking and has a moustache, glasses and a glass of whiskey <laughs> in his hand all the time, is uh, has got a new secretary, is Vanessa Vongelay. And ah. what no one knows is Vanessa Vongelay is actually uh, plotting the demise of the entire family and is secretly a murderer. So she is someone who Ooh. looks like a, as a 1970s secretary, yes. possibly again, possibly someone very beautiful with big glasses on so that she can reveal them at the end. And she will definitely, Vanessa Vongelay, at the end of the thing, will reveal her plan using what... Uh, uh, Mitchell and Webb called the evil voice. Oh, yes. So the actor will actually change voice at the end of the thing and go, ah, my plan all along. Yes. You thought the poison was in... She will poison people. <laughs> Vanessa Vonglet poisons people. She, she, she doesn't get any work, the actress who plays Vanessa Vonglet, except that she's in Death in Paradise now because that's where the evil voice lives. As a regular or just as a... A, a guest, guest murderer. Guest murderer. <laughs> uh, yeah, Vanessa Vonglet. Uh Weirdly, the moment you see her in this, in this putative episode of Tells the unexpected. You go. She's the murderer. There's no level on which you don't know she's the murderer. Everything about her performance says that she's definitely a murderer. So it's got yeah. a bit of a Columbo vibe about it in that you know the culprit. You, saw, you see it coming. You see it coming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Vanessa Vonglet, she was actually there. You go. I'll say she was a, a very successful 1970s actress who played mainly murderers in things. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Was that sort of like was she the jobby actor of the time? Like, did this sort of you say she's in Death of Paradise now? Did she go through, I don't know, Midsummer Murders? No, I, th- I think what, what what's strange about her is that she uh, she uh, the reason we've all heard of her she recently died. Oh, right, uh, yeah. And you looked at her, and you looked at her obituary and and weirdly you recognise her straight away. And you went, oh yeah, that's her. She's from everything. And you look at her IMDb entry. She's in four things, <laughs> three things in 1979 and Death in Paradise. <laughs> and all you want to know because it's in none of the obituaries is what else was she doing? That, that it's just you. These people you go. But I know that face. They're really famous. What what I bet is I bet they were always working. And the answer will be they did rep theatre or something (laughs) like that. But weirdly, they're like an iceberg of performance that a tiny bit of it is showing culturally. And the rest of it is all that they were always in Panto in Eastbourne. But and they had a very very, and also had a very successful and very happy life. Mm. But are something like a neighbour in an episode of The Good Life That's Always Repeated oh, yes. and in an episode of and, and an episode of uh, Tells the Unexpected and probably in Blake 7 and you went oh they must be really famous and successful and it turns out they're just someone's mum who was very happily doing sort of rep theatre and was in three things you've seen too many times repeated on gold oh Vanessa Vongle is great oh god I want to go to a convention and get her autograph but suddenly she's dead <laughs> she had a family life um, did, did her have her children followed in her footsteps the acting footsteps yeah that'd be amazing she's got actually what's weird you don't realise as well she's got uh, a son mm. who's basically like you know what Jared Harris was where it took you ages to work out they had a famous dad mm. 
and her son is something absolutely colossal like the lead in some huge Netflix series yes. and afterward you go oh my god that's Vanessa Vongolo's kid yeah because the surname will be different with different marriages and things like that okay, we'll I was going to say what's, I was gonna say, what's the out, son's name it, it'll, turn out to be, it'll, it'll turn out to be Kit Harrington from Game of Thrones it'll be someone absolutely massive who you don't know their background it'll turn out <laughs> that's Vanessa Vongolo's child <laughs> Huh? It's like finding out. So it's like finding out. You you find out that someone who's won an Oscar, and you go, "What was their dad? Their dad was actually one of the airmen in a lower low." Uh, yeah, it's just <laughs> amazing. Because as, as as someone said recently, showbiz showbiz is full of two sorts of people: people who can't believe they're working in it, and people <laughs> whose parents worked in it and thought, "Though this is fine. It's just a job." And Jen, that's a hundred percent true. Yeah, <laughs> people who can't believe their luck, who felt they're imposters, they're going to find me in a minute. And people whose mums and dads were like floor managers on Blue Peter, and it's fine. That is so true. Do, do you think she ever? Did she ever have a sort of point in her career where she was like, "I think I'm going to give up the acting now"? Before Death in Paradise, do you think she kind of like, "No, nah, I'm taking a break"? I think she spent a lot of time just on an allotment. She got really, really good at gardening. She's amazing. She did a lot of favorite. Other actors would get around to do do, the, do their lawn. Uh, yeah, she, I think she was very happy doing that. And then, then someone remembered her. Robert Thorogood thought, I loved Vanessa Vondelay <laughs> in, um, in, in Does Unexpected. What would really please me? I'll tell you what show she's in as well. She's in One Inside Number Nine. <laughs> that was the last thing she did, was it? Yeah, and it's, and it's a reference that only Stephen Rees care about. <laughs> <laughs> like they yeah. pulled the, like one of the characters, a character from the first show yeah. she did or something. Absolutely. The reference is there and it will be because she was in a Hammer House of Horror or Blake Seven or something. And and a small but vociferous and very happy nerd community when they see her go, yeah, I knew you'd get her in. And, and some, people on the internet, some people on the internet have said, that was predictable. Of course you got her in. Oh, how obvious to get Vanessa Vongole in. Uh, <laughs> bit basic. It's <laughs> just so satisfied, some people, is there? No, no. It's terrible. Poor Vanessa. But she was good. Everyone liked her. Yeah. <laughs> so that is Vanessa Vongale. Oh, what a character. Can you please reveal to me the name uh, you are going to pass on to my next guest? The character we're having next is Tony Edgelord. Tony Edgelord. I think that's a very specific kind of person, but Tony Edgelord, there he is. Who is Tony Edgelord? We shall find out in the next episode of Out of Character. In the meantime, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Joel. That was loads of fun. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for asking me on. Well, that's all we've got time for this evening. Go away. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.